Let me say what I'm going to say okay. in case I just lose everybody. So that uh, I'm going to, I have three points or three steps that I'm going to make. That in this passage, especially the second half of the passage, it's talking about Christ's priesthood and it's saying that he's passed into the heavens. And so that's the, the key thing that I'm going to talk about. And on this basis, clearly we're not simply talking about the death of Christ. Very often when we think of the atonement or what Christ has, is doing in the Holy of Holies, we focus on his death. But in this passage and in other passages, what is actually being offered to God you know, in the Holy of Holies, in heaven itself, is Jesus' perfected humanity. <coughs> so all that he is, is And this is going to make a huge difference. This, I think, changes. This is my second point. This changes the tenor of Christianity as it's often taught when it's focused simply on the death of Christ. So it's not simply our faith in Christ or in the death of Christ, but our entire life. And in in the same way that it's his entire life. That is, it's the... What God has done and what the writer of Hebrews is arguing is that he's uh, suffered, he's died, he's been raised. And with the ascension, this is what the mediation, this is what the priesthood is about. So that all that he is and all that we are is involved in salvation. That's the difference this makes in case we get lost in the first half. And then the third point is that this means we read the life of Christ as a model. So, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or other places, uh, it's a picture of the kingdom that is modeled by Christ and that we enter into the kingdom of God as the enactment of the salvation that we have. And so the last thing I'll do if we get there is... You know, the the salvation we have is one that we live out in community, that we're actually enacting uh, what Christ has done for us together. Okay, that's the that's the main point. the The idea here is that the passage beyond the heavens is the ascension, and the writer of Hebrews focuses on the ascension, and not to the neglect of the resurrection. But, of course, the ascension is on the basis of the resurrection. This may sound like, a, oh, well, of course we know that. But many people reading the book of Hebrews say, oh, there's no resurrection in the book of Hebrews. Well, no, the writer is including that the, the resurrection is a distinct idea. We'll encounter it at various places that he clearly talks about the resurrection. And so the death, the resurrection, and the ascension then is the end of Christ's high priestly ministry. So I think this this may sound like a minor point, but I think it changes up how we think about Christianity. That is, if we think Jesus primarily delivered up his death, in other words, did he take the, the you know present his death to God in the Holy of Holies? Uh, and as the high priest, is it primarily on the cross of Christ that he you know, is doing the work of the priesthood. That is one interpretation of the book of Hebrews, and that's one understanding of Christianity. 
I think that's a misunderstanding. Uh, and it's a misunderstanding that you're going to have to misconstrue this entire book. So this is what I've been arguing throughout, it, that it is not Jesus' death isolated from his life and resurrection, which are the focus of his mediating role as high priest. That is, all that Jesus is, is presented to God in the ascension. And so the summary of this argument is to say that the Jesus' work of priest is one, you know, he's taken it up. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. A lot of people read this metaphorically. I'm saying, no, this isn't a metaphor. You know, this isn't something that happened on the cross. This is what happens at the ascension of Christ. So Jesus' high priestly ministry takes place after his death, after his resurrection. Uh, And his ascension, then, is the focus in the book of Hebrews. And what the ascension means is that it's the entire life of Christ that is involved in his high priesthood. This, then, is going to come back and, you know, that it's, as I said in the opening, that it's our entire life that's involved. Now, part of this, to understand this, we've been through that blood, you know, there, there, is, there are passages in Hebrews that refer to the atonement, and we've talked that blood represents life, not death. So when Jesus is pictured bringing his you know, blood into the Holy of Holies, uh, what is being offered and what was being offered on the Day of Atonement was a life dedicated to God. Um, it's not... Uh, it's the presentation of himself, I think is another way of saying this, entire life. Uh, This is an understanding that if there's been a lot of work done on the Old Testament sacrifices, um, that that was the original meaning of the atonement. That the atonement, the sacrifice of the goat on the Day of Atonement was a, a, a sacrifice of a life dedicated to God. And so in chapter 4, in chapter 8, in chapter 5, the point is that Jesus cannot do his high priestly work on earth. It didn't take place at his death, in other words. The writer is saying it's not an earthly priesthood because there is already an earthly priesthood. If you look at chapter 8, verse 3 to 7, he compares the priesthood of Christ to the priesthood of the Aaronic priesthood, he says that, uh, you know, that for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that the high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Uh, See, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown on the mountain. But he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So the significance of this verse in chapter 4 that he passed through the heavens is to understand the nature of the sacrifice himself and also to understand the mediation that he's doing for us. It's unlikely that Priscilla or Aquila 
or whoever wrote Hebrews, is thinking either of the cross as the place of Jesus or the death of Jesus as the sacrifice that he offered. That's a fairly controversial statement, but I think that's the end result of the understanding Hebrews. This is uh, uh, David Moffat says, Instead, just as he goes on to say, Jesus' offering was presented to God in heaven, the very place where he can serve as a priest. That is, that he's entered into the presence of God. So it's not atonement by his death, but by all he is. Um, Now let me say another controversial thing. In chapter 2, Jesus' death is not depicted in sacrificial terms. Uh, This is Moffat again. The logic of these passages emphasizes the Son's representative participation in the mortal human condition and his subsequent elevation in the heavenly realms as a representative of, of his human siblings. As a human being, the Son Jesus suffered, died, and was perfected. So the argument of the first three chapters that we've already been through, what is, the, what is it that makes Jesus greater than Moses, greater than the angels? It's his humanity. Uh, it's his, it, it certainly is inclusive of his death, but also inclusive of his resurrection. Uh, and this will, you know, he's compared to the Aaronic priests who die and thus will be replaced. But Jesus defeats death in his resurrection. That's the implicit argument. So Jesus is elevated above the angels, not because he is pre-existent, but because he's taken on an immortal humanity, and it's on the basis of this immortal humanity seated at the right hand of God that he's a superior priest, uh, that he's superior to the angels and superior to the Moses. So it's not a metaphor. In other words, I'm reading this literally in chapter 4. There's no metaphor here. Uh, This is again Moffat. If the author thinks of Jesus' blood in terms of his life and he confesses Jesus' bodily resurrection and ascension, then it is logical for him to depict Jesus taking his blood into the heavenly holy of holies and offering it for, uh, before God in order to obtain atonement. What's the basis of atonement? Is it the death of Christ? No, it's the entire life of Christ. That Christ's life, death, resurrection is the means that he's attained uh, atonement for us. This is Moffat. When the writer says that Jesus is the great high priest in heaven and that he offered his blood to God in heaven, he likely means precisely that. After rising to indestructible life and becoming the great high priest, Jesus took his blood or his life into heaven and offered, presented it before God that he continues to offer before God. And so the writer of Hebrews, Priscilla, uh, repeatedly comments about his priestly offering that it's in heaven and it's in the presence of God, it's not earthly. Uh, And it cannot be explained then as a metaphorical, you know, the way that this is often read is, oh, that on the cross he metaphorically entered into the Holy of Holies. No, he's talking about the, this is a post-resurrection post-death 
uh, post-suffering uh, understanding. Um, they are instead an explication of the reality of Jesus' high priestly status in ministry in light of his bodily resurrection. So what Moffat is arguing, what I'm arguing, is that the resurrection is actually at the center of the book of Hebrews as a distinct element in his death. You know, what makes his death something that is, uh, you know, offered up to God? Well, it's there in the resurrection and ascension. So his humanity and his resurrection and his priesthood is you know, or, or his priesthood is on the basis of his humanity. Uh, so his qualifications for his high priesthood, this is the argument of the first several chapters, is inclusive of all that his humanity tells. He has suffered, in this section we're going to read tonight, we read he has been tempted, he's without sin, he's died. But in contrast to the high priests of the Aaronic priesthood, they're subject to death, Jesus has defeated death in his resurrection. That's what makes him superior. So the basis of his priesthood is that he has passed through every phase of humanity and it is on the basis of his ongoing perfected humanity that he is high priest. The word perfect is going to be used here in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is the basis of his perfection. His perfection is not something that he had prior to the incarnation, death, and resurrection. So when is he made perfect? He's made perfect only post-resurrection, right? Uh, so as chapter 5 explains, every priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. So Jesus, too, is a priest of that order. In 5, 7 to 10, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. Uh, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he suffered, he died, he was raised, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We won't do the Melchizedek stuff tonight, but I think we all understand that it's a different order of priesthood. So when was Christ made perfect? The way this is often argued is he's made perfect at his death. But that's not what the writer is saying. It's not at his death. But having been saved from death through his resurrection, he's made perfect. And this is what is taken you know, to the right hand of God. Uh, it involves his life, his death, his resurrection. And this is what is presented to God. Uh, he passed through the heavens. He did not pass through the heavens at the cross, right? He passed through the heavens after his resurrection. And so it may sound like a minor point, but I think it's crucial in understanding what Christ has done, what he is doing for us, but also in turn how our own salvation works. 
if we isolate the death of Christ as the salvific moment, then the very faith that we are participating is one in which we simply have faith in his death. And what the writer of Hebrews is arguing is that he was faithful, and so you too should be faithful too. Uh, It's not a dead body which we chew on, but the living body of the fellowship of Christians that we share in. Uh, Christ did not die for us. You know, he, he did not simply die or offer up death uh, but he, or, or mediate in some way that to us, but he mediated life inclusive of his incarnation, death, and resurrection. Uh, and so belief in some, if, if you don't believe what I'm saying, or if you don't read Hebrews in this way, Probably the reason is because of a belief that Jesus' sacrifice is a vicarious sacrifice. Uh, and it reduces, you know, trusting Christ has gotten God to calm down, maybe enough that he won't destroy us in his anger. That is, it's penal substitution or it's divine satisfaction. But what this entire section and the rest of Hebrews describes is the faithfulness of Christ. Christ is, you know, even at the end, it's not in chapter 11, but at chapter 12, he goes through the catalog of faith, and then he concludes it with the faithfulness of Christ, that Christ is the truly faithful one. He's the one who's made our faith perfect. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Christ, in verse chapter 3, he was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope until firm until the end. So we can be made faithful through his faithfulness. Uh, So we do not believe that Jesus has done everything, so we don't have to do anything. But rather we look to Christ as the one in whom faithfulness, our own faithfulness, you know, our own facing of suffering, our own temptation, and our own death uh, is one that we can uh, un- uh, pass through uh, because he's modeled the way you do that. So this is chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, He's endured such hostility by sinners. So maybe the Hebrews are going through a bit of persecution. Uh, And he says that, you know, look to him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So let me state it very simply. Jesus did not bring his death into God's presence. He brought himself in his perfected humanity into God's presence. And what he mediates to God is all that his humanity entails. And what he mediates to us is the presence of God in all that our humanity entails. So the heavenly mediation is not meant to depict that Jesus is far from us, just the opposite. And that's the opening here. You know, the living word that is active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, the word is one that penetrates us completely, you know, and also the one that has penetrated heaven uh, or beyond the heavens. 
So the logic is the same, uh, that the human situation has been penetrated and the heights of heaven into the presence of God are brought together through the one who is the word. And maybe there is a bit of the use of Jesus, you know, the, some think that the wisdom literature, or the wisdom of Solomon is being referenced here, uh, but only in that the writer is in some way departing from some sort of platonic distinction between heaven and earth. The writer doesn't work with that sort of distinction. The word that penetrates us also mediates the present of, presence of God to us, and that's the the warnings that are given here. And so this this changes up everything. This has a cosmic effect, you know, that the world, ourselves, this penetrating word, everything is brought into perspective. Uh, it has to do with all that we are in individually, but also in community. A way of reading Hebrews and a way of reading the New Testament is to say, oh, well, the world's going to be destroyed. And what God is doing is saving us, you know. But I think the, the proper reading is that it's not that creation is going to be destroyed, but it's perfected, it's completed, uh, it's redeemed. I think also there, there is no aspect of, you know, it's talking about suffering, whether it's psychological suffering, whether it's racial suffering, you know, I think that's part of this in the book, uh, whether it's caused by oppression. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me close just a little bit. I was reading Willie Jennings, who is a black theologian. He describes his parents, this was right after you know, the reconstruction and people moving to the north. And uh, he said they knew the Bible, but far more important, they knew the world through the Bible. Ivory and Mary, which was his parents' names, channeled what Toni Morrison so eloquently called the hurt of the hurt world, the knowledge of the deepest struggles and contradictions of black folks living among white folks. Uh, that their life experience was in and through the word. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is setting up for us. Uh, we could, you know, I, I've been reading Bonhoeffer's Life Together. I think this leads naturally into understanding who we are as a community. Uh, community, you know, this is the quote that Joel read. read. It's Community life is inextricably linked with our salvation, our incorporation into Christ's body. Uh, I think God had God had this community in mind uh, when we've been predestined for salvation in the body of Christ. That is, it's this practical, everyday, doing life together uh, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people and saying, you got to, you know, hang in there, do life together, maintain your community. This is a gift from God. This is salvation itself. That's a brief introduction to verse 12 to 16. Any comment or question there? Think on verse 13, and it says, 
and no creature is hidden from the sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him whom we must give account. That always makes me think of, you know, we're naked and unashamed. And then it, later, then it talks about we have a high priest who is um, able to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, who is able to relate with us. And that, I don't know, which is kind of cool to see redemption from the shame that we have. Yeah, the, the, this penetrating word is not one that makes us ashamed, but we're clothed in this word. That it's one that redeems us. That he's going to later talk about our consciences being cleansed from guilt. Uh, that, uh, I mean, is the writer of Hebrews talking about psychology? Well, I think that's certainly included. That, that we got a, we got a mental, social problem and all of that I think is addressed here in the penetrating word and the one that is grounded in the presence of God alright so let's read through it again and then if you can explain it to me now that I explained it to you uh, Joel you want to read again verse uh uh, 12, 4-12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Anybody want to run that down for us? I didn't really concentrate on these verses, and these seem so significant, you know. Uh, the, the the you know first of all what does he mean by the word the word of God here you know, I, I like to ask questions I don't really know the answer to what do you say Jake maybe Jesus I think it must be Jesus right uh, the word of God so that you know in the Old Testament the word or wisdom is personified. But here we see this personification take, you know, in, it's enfleshed in Christ. I think we often, we often miss something that's, you know, when we read the New Testament, I think we often read it with the idea, oh, well, they're working out the deity of Christ. I don't think that's exactly what's taking place. They've been confronted with the deity of Christ and now they're linking that deity that they've confronted in Christ back to the Old Testament understanding. You know, the Old Testament talked about wisdom, it talked about the Son of God, it talked about the Messiah, but they didn't necessarily link any of that with deity, the Jews. But now these people have confronted deity, and they're saying, well, wait a minute, where did it say that in the Old Testament? So the writer of Hebrews and Paul and others are going back and saying, well, it was there. You know, this is, we understand the wisdom of God or the word of God is God. Now in Christ, we've encountered that wisdom and word. Um, I think that's the, uh, the biblical scholarship of the past century has tended to take just the opposite point of view. 
that it, you know, reading a book like Hebrews or a book like John, they say, oh, look, here, they, they now believe in the deity of Christ. Well, no, <laughs> when they confronted Jesus, they, they worshipped him. They knew this is God. And now they're working out theologically the implications of that. And so I think here with the word, that's one way of connecting the Old Testament wisdom literature, the Old Testament picture of God creating through his word, uh, you know, that here is wisdom. You know, even if, if you go back, Hebrews several places references the wisdom, Jewish wisdom literature. Well, yeah, not to in some way affirm all of that, but to say, well, no, it's been fulfilled in, in Christ. So yeah, I think it's I think it's Jesus, and Jesus as we encounter him in Scripture. It's not you know it is inclusive of the written word, but not simply that, or not only exclusively that. You want to read thirteen, Sharon? I got a question first. Okay. Will you say what you said again about the two-edged sword? You said Jesus was a two-edged sword. I didn't actually say anything about the two-edged sword. You didn't? I should have. What were, What did you want me to say? I thought when you were explaining, before we read, you said how he pierced through us because he's completely human and experienced everything we did. And he pierced through the heavens. Did you not say that? That's a that's a wonderful. Yeah, I did say that, but I I did say that, but I wasn't necessarily referencing the two-edged sword. Uh, <laughs> that's a brilliant a brilliant deduction there. Yeah, that uh, yeah. Uh, Jake, this is your thing with the sword of the spirit. Run that down for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the last one. Oh. Why is there the division between soul and the spirit? I think that joints and marrow. You know, can you actually can you actually separate these things? Well, we can't. And can we actually? You know, can you? Uh, that 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 is that the word of God penetrates where we cannot penetrate. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Oh, the soul is separate from the spirit. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, that that those things, you know, just as the bones are have life in the marrow, so the soul has the life in the spirit. You like that? <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> no, I think that's a... It'd be unnatural then to separate the soul and spirit. It would be unnatural. It'd and be taking the job of God. Yes, yes, it would. To penetrate where we cannot. We cannot do that. We can separate by death and sin and evil. <laughs> but that would be the only, then that's an unnatural separation. Not too much into it. Yeah, number 13. Oh. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all who are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. 
Uh, and, you know, this is all the language throughout of uh, what we would do is clothe ourselves in pride and and that would be undone. Uh, but before God, there's no use faking it, right? Uh, but he clothes us. He, you know, clothes us in, in the white robes of righteousness. Uh, and that's what this book is really about, is sanctification. It's a book about being made right, about living out your salvation. Uh how do we clothe ourselves? I think one of the ways we clothe, our, clothe ourselves is in community. Now, the, Bonhoeffer has put this, you, we all know the famous quote, you know, he who cannot be alone cannot exist in community, and he who cannot exist in community cannot be alone. Uh, you know, part of the, the whole story of life together is he, he has this, you know, he's just finished the cost of discipleship. And what he's describing in the cost of discipleship is the Sermon on the Mount. But he's describing this to his students in a way they've never heard it. Because he's saying, oh, you guys are supposed to do this. That's not the usual Protestant Lutheran way of reading the Sermon on the Mount. We usually read that and say, oh, well, it's a good thing Jesus can do that because he's divine. But we can't. But Bonhoeffer in the cost of discipleship, he takes the Lutheran idea and says, well, this is cheap grace if the Lutheran idea is to separate out doing stuff from the salvation that we have in Christ. I don't know. Anybody else have something in verse 12? Who said, who? oh, this was, was this you, Rachel? No, Sharon. Oh, Sharon said that. And read it. And, and read it again. And read it again. Okay. Let's go on to Maisie, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, this is what I focused on. Where does Jesus do his high priestly work? It's not on earth. And this sounds, well, you're being religious now. Well, no, I think this is significant because the work that he does for us is in the presence of God. It's not something he did on the cross. It's not. It's specifically not penal substitution. It's not divine satisfaction. That the mediating high priestly work of God is post-resurrection ascension work. I, I'm just reading it in my simple little mind. And not taking it metaphorically. And I think that's the way the writer of Hebrews. Priscilla, that's the way Priscilla wants us to read. And this then allows us to hold firmly to the faith. You know, the faith, he's talked throughout about faithfulness. And what he's eliciting in his readers is their faithfulness. And then verse 15. Uh, Rachel. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, and may, go ahead, Maisie. Oh, no, you say what you're going to say. I'm just saying it's like encouraging because he's saying we can, we can also do it. Like we can do what he did. Because 
he went through the whole the whole thing. The death and the resurrection. We can also do that being faithful to Christ. Because he did. Yeah. And so he, he, he was without, he was made perfect. Uh, you know, and the obvious difference is that the Aaronic priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves, and then they died. And clearly this was not the point. The, the Mosaic priesthood was itself then pointing to the priesthood in which uh, no no further sacrifice would have to be made. Sin is taken care of in the person and work of Christ. Seems like we should say more there, Jake, about sinlessness. Maybe I'm not saying enough. Anybody, anybody want to jump on that? Okay, uh, maybe not. Uh, and and the obvious thing here is that uh, he's he's uh, experienced suffering. He's experienced everything that we experienced. And now, when we experience it, and suffering is a biggie, because now when we experience suffering. Uh, we don't experience it as some sort of, you know, the, the difference, you know, that Paul will talk about is that in light of the glory of God, we can rejoice in suffering, which sounds strange. You know, who wants to rejoice in suffering? But the point is that in some way, the priestly work that he did is one that we then take up in our own mutual suffering. That is, we bear the burdens of one another. We suffer one another. Some of us are less cause for suffering than others. But but as a community, that uh, I I think part of that is that we do the high priest, you know, is there a, a continuing priesthood? Yeah, we're all priests in that sense, that we're bearing one another's burdens. You know, uh, Bonhoeffer would even have us confess to one another. He would have us, uh, you know, uh, that in some way we have to be do life together. I think that's what's missing. Somebody, somebody put a post up of who's the uh, the theologians, but Peter in uh, California. He's, he. Peter. I, no one else. Peter Rowland. Huh. No. No. Oh well, he said. He said, the megachurch is not a church. By definition, you cannot have a church in which you do not know one another, and it be a church. Yeah, I think that's about right. How can you? How can you bear one another's burdens? How can you confess? You know, and so I think the idea is that uh, we're in this thing. Not as a you know an anonymous group of people that share some vague notion of faith, but no, we do life together because that's what constitutes that faithfulness is one that is constituted in a corporate Christianity. All right, where did we get uh, verse sixteen? And I forgot who Jake. Is it your turn? Sure. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. To the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And grace and mercy are the economy that, you know, is mediated to us in and through this high priest. It's not wrath and vindictiveness. It's not. Uh, and so as Christ is forgiven, so we forgive. As we receive mercy, so we give mercy. So. It was that, that uh, I, I think I, those of you who just came tonight, that may have been so bizarre that you didn't follow. Those of you who have been here on a regular basis, that may have been so much of the same that, you know. But it's a, it, this is, the Hebrews is a very interesting read because of the, the, in other words, the peculiar absence of the focus on resurrection. You mean crucifixion? No, resurrection. He does talk about the cross, but instead of talking about resurrection, he tend, in other words, some people say he's talking about ascension. But the resurrection is there. In other words, and a way of reading it is to say, oh, the resurrection's not important. And there's a whole theology that tends to reflect this idea. Oh, it's not the bodily resurrection and ascension that's important. It's the death that's important. But that's, I think, that what I, the, the argument that I was making is to say, no, the resurrection is actually front and center in all this. Because there is the place in which the humanity of Christ is perfected. And that's what the writers are arguing. Now, if you, you, know, if you didn't buy the entire theological package that I think is there in Hebrews, and you were coming at it with another theology, then you would probably every commentary, nearly every commentary, that's too much. Many of the commentaries that you would pick up, they're gonna, they're gonna, in some way, explain the absence or lack of in, uh, focus on the resurrection, as if the the ascension is a spiritualized ascension, or the resurrection is not important. Or, but that's, I think, that's. A